Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and you see Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon, Jeff. How are you today? I am fine. And you see Joe Works as soon as he'll say something in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Greetings, brethren. Good to see you both. And we are going to finish up by a look at the last week of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. And of course, we talked last week about the crucifixion. Today, we're going to be in Matthew, the 28th chapter, where we actually have the resurrection. But we began this study a week prior to the resurrection. We began this study on what we would call Sunday before the crucifixion. So guys, take us back to that day and let's just do a review leading up to the point where we are now. <clears throat> well, uh, I meant for one of you to start talking at that point. Well, we, we, we kind of begin with the triumphant entry on uh, what we generally uh, consider the first day of the week, um, uh, Matthew chapter 21. It's kind of interesting, even, even before that, you have a number of instances that, that, that sort of lead up to that Jesus warning the disciples uh, about what's going to happen there. He does that repeatedly throughout his preaching, but especially towards the end, he really emphasizes everything that's going to transpire from chapters 21 to 28. No surprise for Jesus, um, and the disciples have been forewarned multiple times. Yeah, so after he enters into Jerusalem, he goes to cleanse the temple, which is kind of a like kingly thing to do. You see that in the old Testament where then there's sin in the temple that, you know, the Kings of reform like Josiah and Hezekiah will come through and they, they will completely clean it out. And that's kind of symbolic of what Jesus is doing here because he is the King. And as you all can imagine, they weren't very happy about that. And so his authority is questioned about that. And then Jesus will go on to give a few parables to describe what's going to happen to him as a result of being the king that comes in to clean things up. Um, he was, he was the one that was sent in to collect some of the produce and there at the end of Matthew 21 from the vineyard. And yet they end up killing the beloved son. And then um, after he tells some parables, which really kind of call out the Jewish leadership, uh, then there are the attempts to discredit him in the eyes of the people, the, uh, Pharisees and some of the their disciples with the Herodians take a crack at him by trying to m put him in the position of either um, speaking treasonously and saying don't pay taxes to Caesar or advocating for paying taxes to Caesar and thus uh, putting him at odds with a lot of the, of the Jewish people uh, and and he answers that deftly and then the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection, come, and they tried to make it look silly that there would be such a thing as resurrection. And he answers that deftly and puts them in their place. Then there's the question about the first and great commandment that he's asked. And then, of course, he asks them a question. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a question which goes back to the 110th Psalm, which points to the Messiah. And um, they can't answer that question. And then we get to chapter 23, and in chapter 23, um, he just very blatantly calls out the Pharisees and the scribes as hypocrites, and he talks about how they do everything to be seen of men, but they are not sincere. And then we get to chapter 24. What do we find there? He's foretelling the, the conclusion to, to their betrayal of him, their denying of him. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's the the logical 
conclusion to the Jews. It, it's really sort of an expanse upon the parable of the wicked vin vineyard. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Um, there, there you've got the, the vineyard owner and he's sending messengers to when at the time of harvest and his messengers are beaten, which would be the Old Testament prophets being beaten and then are killed. And then he sends the son and, and they say, let's kill the son, which is what the Jews did when the son came. And so judgment's going to come upon Jerusalem. Then we come to yeah. chapter 25 and we have a couple of parables that really have to do with um, how we're supposed to be conducting ourselves in a fashion that we're ready when the Lord comes back. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Need emphasis on being prepared on uh, being uh, uh, useful with the things that God has given us yeah. and uh, of, of helping those less fortunate. Uh, and then of course, chapter 25 will end with a parable talking about the judgment that's going to be coming um, where God or excuse me, the son of man is going to be separating the sheep from the goats. And mm -hmm. um, it really, it's pretty impressive to me that this is really the last parable we get from Jesus before he's killed is about judgment. Interesting. Um, put it that way. Yeah. And he, he is going to be the one that ends up doing the judging himself, which is super important to see there. Then we come to chapter 26 and Matthew actually has what apparently is a, a bit of a flashback to something that happened maybe just before his triumphal entry. Uh, but it's the occasion that John describes in more detail when Mary had come in and anointed Jesus with some very expensive ointment, and Judas had uh, been perturbed. He was the one who kept the bag, and he would steal money out of the bag. So he says this money, this perfume should have been sold, and the money we could have used it to help the poor. Well, that's not what he wanted to do with money. He wanted to get his hands on the money. But apparently all the disciples or various of the disciples chime in with him thinking that what he's saying makes sense. And Jesus kind of puts them in their place and talks about what the woman has done is for his burial. Uh, and it's immediately after this that Matthew tells us that Judas goes out and makes his deal to deliver Jesus to the Jews for 30 pieces of silver. So then uh, that gets us up to uh, what, what I understand would be Thursday of the crucifixion week and the, the evening of what we would call Thursday. He eats the Passover supper with the apostles and he and Judas goes that he identifies Judas as the one who's going to betray him, although the apostles didn't seem to get that. Um, Peter says he'll never deny the Lord and Jesus says he will. And of course, Jesus is then. Jesus and his disciples cross the brook Kidron. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Judas leads the mob and identifies Jesus with a kiss, and the mob arrests Jesus. Peter draws his sword, takes a whack at one of the servants of the high priest, a guy named Malchus, takes his ear off. Jesus says, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and um, then he's hauled off to be tried, and what happens next? He first goes before the Jewish crowd, um, so before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Peter's kind of following in the background as this is going on, and they're trying to find false testimony against Jesus so that they can put him to death. <coughs> and, and then, of course, he is, um, he's brought before Pilate, the Roman governor, because the Jews, even though They've been willing to stone people and attempted to stone Jesus prior. Now they're going to become very scrupulous about 
the idea that they aren't supposed to put anybody to death. The Romans have the authority to put people to death. And so what's really going on here, I think, is the Jewish leaders don't want responsibility for Jesus' death, even though they are going to tell Pilate uh, in shortly that his blood be upon us and on our children. But they want the Romans to do it. And so they bring him before Pilate. Well, I guess let's uh, let's move along here. Uh, we've gone recently through the details of his standing before Pilate and how he was sent to Herod and back to Pilate. Pilate trying to get out of this, doesn't see any need to put this man to death, but, but pressure is brought to bear, political pressure, and so he is going to allow them, he's going to allow Jesus to be crucified, and he delivers them over to be crucified, and we talked about his crucifixion, and then his burial, Joseph of Arimathea takes the body and and uh, puts Jesus' body in his own tomb. And now we're going to come to the story of the resurrection. Let's get to chapter 28, verse 1, guys. Uh, Joe, why don't you take us from verse 1, uh, just verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Yeah, so um, if he was crucified on what we would say Friday, and then the body was taken down so that it wouldn't be on the cross hanging on a tree into the Sabbath day, then they rested on the Sabbath day, and then as it becomes late on the Sabbath day, and then actually toward the next morning, toward dawn, Mary Magdalene comes to the sepulcher. And it says dawning toward the first day of the week. So let's talk a little bit about this expression, the first day of the week. And then let's talk a little bit about the significance of the first day of the week. Um, it's kind of interesting. The uh, expression first day of the week is, is not a literal translation. Very literally, it would be unto one of Sabbaths. And people, people make something of the fact that Sabbath here is plural. Uh, so the Sabbath day is what day of the week? Saturday. So that's, that would be the day before. But oftentimes in the Bible, when there is a Jewish feast day referred to, such as uh, the Passover, or Feast of Unleavened Bread, or a Sabbath day, it, it's conventional that the plural would be used, even though we're talking about one day. And so even though the word Sabbath is plural here, it's referring to a particular Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. And there's an oddity here. It says one, but there is a, there is a pattern of the, the, you know, you guys, if I say cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers, you guys know what I mean? The distinction there? So Absolutely not. You're you got the wrong two guys on the I, podcast. I, I think we talked about those in eighth grade, and I slept through that one. Yeah. Ordinal numbers have to do with order. So, like first, second, oh. third. When you say first, second, you're talking about the order in which they occur. Cardinal numbers are just one, two, three. So, cardinal is one. One is a cardinal number. First is an is an ordinal. And in Greek, you have ordinals and cardinals. You have words that mean one and two, and you have words that mean first, uh, second. Oh, I, I remember a Greek teacher pointing that out to me one time. You should. I think I know that <laughs> Greek teacher. <laughs> yeah. So, and Jeff, so what's specifically cool about this is throughout the rest of scripture, guess what we don't see? What do we on not see? On the second day of the week, on the right. third day of the week, on the fourth day of the week, fifth, sixth, seventh. Right. You, don't, you don't see that. That terminology is not used. 
it is only first day of the week is brought up. I want you to come back to that point in just a second in connection with Acts chapter 20 and verse seven. Sure. Um, so, okay. But it so happens that even though it's the word one, it's a cardinal here in Greek there, there's kind of a habit in, in certainly in, in some of the biblical writings to use the um, cardinal number for the ordinal. So even though it says one, it's going to mean first. Here it says first of Sabbaths, other kind, uh, or first of the Sabbath. In other places, it actually, and, and it's the feminine form. It's the, the, the number one is feminine here. Uh, numbers, like a lot of things in Greek, are either feminine or masculine or neuter. And it's going to be, uh, the default would be masculine, but it's feminine here. Why? It's because the word day, which was also feminine, is implied here. And in other passages where you see the, the expression in English, first day of the week, the word day is explicit. And so what you understand here is the expression means the first day of Sabbath, or we could say the first day from Sabbath. So bottom line, this, the expression that we see translated first day of the week, very literally is an expression that means first day from Sabbath. And if you think about it, for the Jews, the Sabbath was the day. And then you talk about the other days in their relation to the Sabbath day. So if you say first day from Sabbath, that's going to be the day after the Sabbath. And for us, then our week starting on Sunday, we, we would say the first day of the week. That, so our Bibles typically will say first day of the week. And that's what it means, but that's not the way it says it. Does that make sense? Did I, did I end up making sense or did I just say a bunch of stuff ramble around there? Makes sense. Okay. All right. Um, it's helpful. If somebody, if somebody sees the whole Sabbath thing, uh, I think that's helpful to, to know that. Yeah. Um, so, so right, let's talk about this, though. Is it unusual that Matthew mentions that Jesus, that he's going to describe the resurrection as taking place on the, on the day after the Sabbath? Is that unique to Matthew? No. All four Gospels will point out the fact. Is it all four? Three all of the four. four. All, all four, four Gospels point all out the fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Yeah. And, and then we see that expression again in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And this goes to your point, Chase. Um, we're in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and Paul is traveling, and he comes to Troas, and he stays there seven days. And then verse 7, you have a, a, an expression. It's not exactly the same as in Matthew, but it's a similar expression. Let me flip over there to Acts chapter 20. And verse 7. And can't get my Bible pages to turn quickly enough. So, so real quick, Paul is on the third preaching trip he goes on at this point. Um, and so Acts 20, mm -hmm. verse 7, on the and first he, day of the week. Yeah, and again, it's the same thing where you have the, the cardinal number used for the ordinal. Uh -huh. um, and again, it's feminine um, in the first of the Sabbath, Sabbath plural again here, but we talked about that. But what it means is the first day from the Sabbath, which would be the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. Now, you were making a point a moment ago, Chase. Yes, I was just pointing out the fact that, that there are, is it safe to say, guys, there's a lot of days covered in the New Testament, um, <laughs> yeah, Monday, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. Would, you, would you even go as far to say that there was probably an event that happened on every day of the week recorded yeah. in the scriptures for it. I would go so far. Yeah. And yet that's not said to us that way. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, we know Jesus would have been taking the Lord's supper, the Passover, it would have been on a Thursday night, right? 
uh, it doesn't say on the, uh, for them, it would, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, would, it wouldn't be the fourth day of sixth. the week. So, oh, man, sixth. It doesn't give the number of the day of the week it should have been. Um, look, we're not known for our mathematician. Okay, we're, we're just here to teach the Bible. So whichever day it is, it doesn't. Make <laughs> so but, in Luke, especially in the book of Acts, Luke is an extremely careful historian. And he mentions various days. He mentions the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He never mentions what day of the week it is, except if he is to mention it's a Sabbath day, calling attention to the fact that Jesus or that Paul comes into the synagogue to preach to the Jews in some particular city first on a Sabbath day, except here. This is the only other time in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, when it's a day and he tells us what day it is relative to the Sabbath day. And it's in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, when the Christians have come together to break bread, which well, I understand. Joe, do you, you understand that to be a reference to the Lord's Supper? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and that's, that's powerful that it all fits together in that way. Mm -hmm. um, we have the, the, the Lord's Day, I, I think, likely referencing the same thing in Revelation 1. Uh, I wouldn't argue that uh, long. Uh, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There's this particular emphasis there. Um, so why does it make sense, Joe, to call the, the first day after the Sabbath the Lord's Day? That's, you're alluding to Revelation 1.10, where it says John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And we do understand that to be the first day after the Sabbath or the first day of the week. Why does it make sense to call that day the Lord's Day? Well, I mean, it, the, the day of his resurrection, that's, that's pretty powerful, right? Uh, to, to think about that, you know, this, this tremendous event took place on, uh, on this day. Um, uh, I think that, that certainly uh, fits with recognizing um, uh, the significance of, of his resurrection and, and what that means for mankind, right? Yeah, it's his victory over death. You were talking earlier about the fact that uh, as leading up to this last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified, he knew this was coming. He talked about how he had to go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised up the third day. The end of the story isn't the crucifixion. Uh, the crucifixion is the moment where you people would have thought he, he's been defeated. He's lost, but his resurrection, he is raised. He, he is brought to naught him that had the power of death. That is the devil in the language of Hebrews, the second chapter. Yeah. Uh, he has entered into the strong man's house and bound the strong man, that being the devil, in the language going back to Matthew chapter 12. Um, so his resurrection is his would you, victory. Would you associate that with Psalm 118 as well? Uh, remind me. Uh, verses 22 through 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hmm. Uh, the day that Christ became the chief cornerstone, this is the day that the Lord has made. Well, the Lord has made every day, but there's something really special about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so then, you know, there are some, some religious groups, some denominations that make the claim that uh, the idea of the first day of the week being special is something that was invented by the Roman Emperor Constantine in, in the 300s, in the fourth century. 
Um, and, and I think what we're seeing is that's not the case. The fact is we see the church at Corinth. Uh, Paul is writing to them and he tells them on the first day of the week, uh, let them lay by in store, set aside money uh, for an offering for the, gen the Jewish saints in need. And he says he, he'd given the same order to the churches of Galatia. Um, and, and so we, we see the church at Antioch coming together on the first day of the week to break bread, apparently to eat the Lord's Supper. We see the church of Corinth and apparently also the churches of Galatia. The first day of the week was a time that they apparently were going to be together and could set aside funds. And you see this expression that you referred to the Lord's Day that's used in Revelation 1.10, which by the way, just in terms of language, linguistically is very similar to the expression Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper belongs to the Lord's Day. And um, so, so, okay, so Jesus is raised on the first day of the week, and that sets the stage for his disciples thereafter to see something special in this day as a day in which we commemorate his death and his victory over death. Amen. All right, let's go back to Matthew 28. I think Chase may have had to go out on a call, um, so uh, we'll carry on with, without our esteemed comrade partner. All right, let's go on to verse two. Uh, Joe, take us from verse two down through verse, uh, all the way through verse seven. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. I kind of think he's not here, he's risen, even as he said. Kind of like, what were we expecting? He told you he wasn't going to be here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it, again, it, it, the Lord knew and had told them over and over exactly what was going to play. And, you know, as he talks about in this, those previous chapters to the, the uh, triumphant entry, he just told them, you know, I'm, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed by the chief priests and the scribes, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. He, he just kept saying that over and over. There are people who read this account, these accounts of Jesus' activities after he's raised from the dead. And like here, it says he goes before you unto Galilee. And, and people wonder, well, how did he get to Galilee? He just kind of whooshed and he was there. And they end up concluding that Jesus was not raised bodily. He was just a spirit that could just kind of move about like a spirit. Um, the Bible is very clear that he was raised bodily. Uh, and, and maybe we need to emphasize that, but let's also pay attention to the fact that even before his crucifixion, we have evidence of Jesus being able to just move from one place to another. Um, if you were superstitious, you could say magically, but it's it's supernatural power. If, if, as one person stated it, once you accept Genesis 1, anything else is possible for God. Right. <laughs> but there was uh, the time, I think it's in Luke, the fourth chapter, is it, where uh, they led him out to throw him headlong down the hill, and he just 
pass through the crowd. This is a crowd of people who are forcibly taking him to throw him headlight. If a crowd of people, Joe, take a crowd of people take you to throw you down a cliff, how do you just pass through them? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get by. Uh, they, they were determined to kill him on that day. And, and a normal person would not be able to just slip through. And then there's the, the, the account, and I can't think of which passage it is right now, but straightway, he, uh, he's on the boat and straightway there at the shore. It must be Mark's account that it uses that language. I want to say Mark 441, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And uh, so how that doesn't seem to sound like that, that boat moved at normal boat speed on the Sea of Galilee. It sounds like, right. let's see, is it Mark 441? Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a different account there. Um, yeah, I'll have to look for that. Tell you what, let's let's throw that out to our viewers and say, hey, somebody come up with that reference for us real quickly. Um, I'm going to be embarrassed if it's in Matthew 14 since we're in Matthew, uh, but I'm going to take a quick peek. No, I'll leave it. I'll leave it to the uh, viewers. Yeah. All right. See if one of them comes up with well, that. This, if, if anybody doubted whether Jeff or I knew everything, we've we've made that clear. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody had that question in their mind, but just in no, case. I, I don't think anybody was thinking, oh, I think they know everything. No, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. All right. Back to Matthew chapter 28 then. Um, but, you know, the point I was making is Jesus could just, he could be in Galilee. Doesn't mean he wasn't bodily raised from the dead. In Luke 24, it talks about how he ate bread in fact in fact let's turn over to luke chapter 24 because there they think they see a ghost and jesus makes a point that he's not just a ghost he says in verse 38 it's in verse 37 where they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they beheld a spirit when the resurrected jesus appeared to them and he said unto them verse 38 why are you troubled wherefore do questionings arise in your heart see my hands and my feet that it is i myself handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you behold me having. He had flesh and bones. And then while they still disbelieved for joy, which is an interesting expression, and wondered, he said unto them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And what was the point of that? Yeah, it's showing that he's in bodily form. Yeah. All right. So we go back to Matthew chapter 28 and we come to verse 11 and I'll read down through verse 15. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and told unto the chief priest all the things that were come to pass. Basically, the tomb is empty. <laughs> and when they were assembled with, and you know, Joe, I want to come back to you in a moment just to, and get your thoughts. What all did they have to tell? Let's come back to that in a second. Yeah. When they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave much money unto the soldiers, the council did, saying, say you that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll persuade him and rid you of care. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying spread abroad among the Jews and continues to this day. All right, let's walk through this paragraph. First of all, <coughs> these soldiers what would they have had to tell when they come uh well that the tomb was the 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 stone magically rolled away uh that the uh angels uh bright light the earthquake uh, uh all of those things back in verse two yeah mm -hmm. and i'm not sure how much they saw but that earthquake you felt the bright light i can imagine maybe they saw the angels 
But nonetheless, nobody's interested in that. Everybody's just interested in making sure that word doesn't get out that Jesus was raised. Right. So here's the story. You fell asleep, which now, now do you think these were Roman soldiers or do you think these were Jewish soldiers? I, I guess I've taken them to be Roman soldiers, but I, I'm always hesitant on uh, this passage and even in the, uh, in the garden to, to know for certain which ones they were. Yeah, and, and I guess on the face of it, there's a couple of thoughts here, and I've not spent a lot of time looking at this, but I know there's a question about it. But the first thought is they come to the chief priests, first of all, and that seems odd. Why would Roman soldiers go to the chief priests? But I can see why they wouldn't want to go back to Pilate and say, oh, we, we, we failed, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, though, in verse 13, when, or verse 14, if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and rid you of care. That's not something they would need to say, to do, or say they would do if they were Jewish soldiers. They would, they, they, this, is, this seems to be saying, we know you're accountable to Pilate. And you're going to be in trouble if, if he hears that somehow you botched this up. But don't worry about it. We will take care of this. We're the ones that, that insisted he crucified Jesus. We're the ones that were concerned about the idea of a resurrection. We're the ones that requested a guard because we didn't want people saying he was raised. So we'll just go back to Pilate and we'll say, look, look, we're satisfied. We're not upset. Don't worry about it. And we'll make sure you don't get in trouble. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, which... Of course, if it, if, if it is Roman soldiers, uh, the penalty would have been death for them otherwise. You would think, yeah, I re you remember the Philippian jailer was ready to kill himself when he thought his prisoners had escaped. Right. And it's pretty bad when a dead prisoner escapes. <laughs> as, they, as they, you know. All right. So, uh, so they took the money and they did as they were taught. And then it says this saying was spread abroad among the Jews and continues to this day. What saying? Uh, that, that Jesus, uh, that the disciples came and took Jesus by night, uh, slipped out, of, slipped him out of the tomb, past the guards. Now, interestingly, um, that explanation is not the explanation that prevailed in history. Uh, seven weeks later, uh, Peter's going to stand up and tell thousands of Jews that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And if it had gained any currency amongst the, the local populace, this idea that the disciples had come and stolen Jesus' body, uh, then you would have a competing, you would have two competing explanations. And you have thousands of Jews, 3,000, that found Peter's explanation more logical, more compelling, more credible than the claim that the disciples had stolen the body. And later on, you know, some 20 years later, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he makes the claim that Jesus appeared to 500 brethren at once, he goes on to add, the most of whom are, are still alive. Some have passed on, some have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. And Paul's point in saying that is to say, you can verify this, you can talk to them. I think it's interesting to see that there were two explanations for what happened to the body, and yet the claim that the disciples stole the body, which a skeptic might think that's the most credible one. That's not the one that people found credible. They were sh so short-sighted. You know, when Jesus is on the cross, mm -hmm. remember at the point in which he died, 
the graves were opened. Remember the, the, the rocks were split, the earthquake graves were opened. Many of the bodies of the saints who had died uh, were raised, chapter 27, verse 52. Th there's just way too much to explain away with their feeble attempt here. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it just uh, once again shows um, uh, these religious leaders are acting like Keystone cops. Uh, they, they, don't, <laughs> yes. they, they just don't have a clue how to resolve this situation. So then we come to verse 16, but the 11 disciples, why only 11? I thought there were 12. Uh, well, Judas is gone now. Oh, that's right. But the 11 disciples went into Galilee unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And Jesus came to them and spoke unto them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. All right. So he sends them out into all the nations. Uh, did they carry out this mission? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they went. Uh, we can look at Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, and uh, I forget the other verse there towards the end, about 21 or 22, 23, uh, where Paul says that the gospel has gone out to, to all the nations, to all the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes people quibble. They say, well, did, did it get to North Korea? Did it get to, did it get to Zambia? Did it get to uh, what would be Arizona today? You know, yeah. uh, did it get to every single person? You know what? I don't know uh, all the answers of exactly where all it went, but I know you can speak in broad terms and talk about the gospel going to the whole world. And I know that whatever Jesus meant, we can turn to what you said, Colossians chapter one, and we can see that Paul said it was accomplished. Uh, I don't have to debate the question of what exactly does that mean? Every single person, but before the destruction of Jerusalem. And you, you if, well, let me read it here in Colossians chapter one, you, you alluded to it, but it's in verse uh, 23, where it says, if so be that you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached in all creation under heaven. So that's a letter being written uh, maybe about AD 61 or so, um, so less than 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And already by then, Paul says it's happened. And if, if we go back to Matthew 24, back in Matthew 24, you know, when Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in AD 70 or 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus said in verse 14 of Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, and then shall the end come, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, and, and, and the text that nor uh, you and I, uh, I believe, are in, trying to suggest that every single person heard from the apostles uh, obviously, people are being born every day, uh, growing up, and, and so forth. But think about what it says, what the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 2. Um, we're not even having to see that they're going to go to all the nations. Matthew 28, 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And Acts 2, in verse 5, 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then it begins to list all these different nations. So the way the Bible uses this language, I think in effect, they accomplished it on the day of Pentecost even. Now I'm not suggesting that it stopped there, certainly didn't. But the text tells us that they preached to every nation under heaven uh, right there on the day of Pentecost. They understand the, the, the end result of this is others are going to go and preach and others are going to, you know, it, it's going to be a continual thing yep. generation after generation. Right. But, but what they were told to do, they did in Acts 2. Yep. And, it's, and historically, you know, we have some uh, indications of where some of the apostles went. Uh, there are records that suggest that Thomas went to India. Matthew, I uh, can't remember. We have indications where Matthew went, but I can't remember right now. Was Matthew one that went down into Africa? Or I, I'm, I don't remember all of that. Yeah, I've, I've seen those lists. Uh, I, I don't know how we would know, and uh, they may very well be true. Um, but I don't, I don't even think that we need to, to, to have that sort of verification. We've got the, the Bible that tells us right. they did that. Sure, sure, sure. But he tells them to go into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of an interesting question because there are some groups that make a quite a big deal about, and I was talking with somebody just the other day. Um, it was, um, I think it was a Mennonite fellow who here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I'm sitting in Chester County right now, but my house is in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and uh, I have a lot of acquaintances who are Mennonites and, and Amish, and um, talking with a Mennonite fellow, no, I think it was an Amish, no, I remember who it was now, it was an Amish fellow, and he was explaining their, their baptizing, they baptize, uh, they sprinkle, but they sprinkle water three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that they're not very particular about actually baptizing, immersing as in the bible but they are very particular that you do it once for the father once for the son and once for the holy spirit um what about that joe well one of the interesting things is it is it every time in the book of acts it talks about them being baptized in the name of jesus i I don't think it ever mentions or i don't i'm not recalling right now at least uh it people being baptized using the phrase or something like that in the name of the father the son the holy spirit uh, we see them yeah. being baptized in the name of Jesus. Yeah, in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, in verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we're, one of the things we need to recognize is that he doesn't, he's not telling people this is something that you say when a person is baptized. He's saying, do this under the authority of. Exactly. The, the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is, is the same as the authority of Jesus. He just said, all authority has been given to me. So those aren't contradictory. Right, um, right. Uh, we baptize by the authority of Jesus. There's not some specific formula that has to be said while a person is being baptized. Yeah, so you made two good points there. It's not an instruction what to say. It's an instruction what to do. Colossians 3, 17, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to make a phone call. Do I say, in the name of Jesus, I make this phone call? I, I can do it in the name of Jesus, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean I say those words, but I have to act by the authority of Jesus. And then the other point you've made is if it's by the authority of Jesus, it's by the Father and the Holy Spirit. The, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He, he, he is given authority by the Father. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to, to bring to the remembrance of, of his disciples all that he taught them. Uh, so, it, you know, Joe, I'm going to go out on a limb here. This may get me in trouble with somebody, and it may be a, a while. We have a song, Father, I Love You. And it goes on. And then the second stanza is Jesus, I love you. And then the third stanza is Holy Spirit, I love you. I I never I never enjoy singing that song. I don't like that song because it, putting it like that, once Father, I love you, once Jesus, I love once doing it like that, it's almost like I could possibly just love the Father and not the Holy Spirit. I better make clear if I, I love each one of them, you know. I, I, I there's just more. There's more of a unity of the Father, the Son, and Spirit than I think is is communicated by that song, and maybe that's just a little pet peeve of mine, and I'll, I should just shut up about it. But <laughs> it's, it's not a favorite of mine either. So I, uh, but but it, you know, one of the things we need to do when we are singing is sing with the understanding, and so we ought to think about if I am putting these in separate uh, verses, why am I doing that? And, and maybe somebody has a valid reason. Maybe. They need to be thinking about that while they do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he says in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, it's not three different things, three different authorities. It's this is something that is coming from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you're going to do this by that authority. Yeah. So, okay. Um, well, one more thing here. Um, well, while we're on verse 19, if I, if I could really quickly, uh, Please. I think it's helpful to see the way that it's stated make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then in verse 20, teaching them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, you, you know the, the grammar a lot better than I do, but isn't the idea of making disciples uh, two-stage there uh, described sort of in, in, in two steps? Uh, that's probably not the best terminology, uh, but you baptize them and you teach them. Um, mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so the baptism is the beginning then of this relationship. Uh, yeah, they... and, and you know while we're at it, we talk about the grammar in verse nineteen. It's not so much a command to go; it's a command to uh, make disciples. Yeah, and, and so the go, the the verb for go is actually a participle, going. In other words, in your going or as you go, make disciples. Um, and so that, that brings me to this thought. I, I believe we need to take advantage of our opportunities to preach the gospel wherever we can and into all the world. And Joe, you've done a lot of work in, in um, those places where you've done a lot of work. <laughs> Brazil, Brazil and Mozambique. And Mozambique, Portugal. that's the one I was trying to think of. Mozambique, yeah. Uh, not so much in Seychelles, but some there and, and various other places. And and uh, I've had some opportunities to, to preach in Russia and, and in East Europe. Uh, well, the part of Russia I was in was East Europe, but also in Moldova and Czech Republic and in, in Central America, uh, various countries and in West Europe. Uh, not spend as much time as you have in any of those places, but um, 
I, I do believe that, you know, we, there's great good that can be done in taking the gospel to places where there aren't many people preaching the gospel. And we, we need to take advantage of doing that and help those who do do that. But, but I, I sometimes think sometimes Christians can fall into the habit of needing a, a we want to have book chapter verse for all that we do. But sometimes we'll latch on to a verse to make it say, this is this this is the verse that tells me to do what I'm doing, and maybe we stretch it a little bit. And here's how this point gets made in this passage. People will say, "Well, uh, I, I would say this is actually an instruction to the apostles, and they were to do this starting in Jerusalem." That's what he says in Acts chapter one and in Luke twenty-four. Are we right. supposed to start in Jerusalem? He says to them, "They are to do this, and they're going to accomplish this before the destruction of Jerusalem." This is not an instruction to us. But then somebody says, oh, but it says teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Well, that doesn't mean everything he commanded the apostles we are to do. The apostles were to cast out demons. And again, the apostles were supposed to start in Jerusalem. Yeah, the apostles were to start in Jerusalem. So we don't we don't take that. No, no one takes that literally. Yeah. So I think that Chase was talking, and he, he used the phrase, how did he use it? Did he say overkill? Is that what he said? Or I think so, yeah. Yeah, we, we sometimes engage maybe a little overkill in trying to justify our need to, we're to be lights in the world. I think that's enough, you know. Yeah. We, we, we are to take the gospel wherever we have opportunity to take the gospel. But I don't necessarily need this passage to prove that I should go to Russia, uh, because he said to the apostles, go into all the world, and then they're supposed to teach me to do what they did. Now, this is really a specific instruction about what they were to accomplish, and it's similar to, what, to our responsibility today. Chase, welcome back. And, and, and we have other passages that give instructions to what disciples ought to do, what faithful brethren ought to do, and how they work together, and uh, edification and, and evangelism, and so we we should let those passages speak to us. And we let we see in, in Philippians, Paul talking about how the fruit of Paul's labors was a fruit that increased to the Philippians account. That is by their providing him funds while he's in Rome. Maybe that's funds he could use to rent the house in which he hosted people, even when he was a prisoner. They are getting credit for the gospel being preached in Rome. And we look at that and we say, hey, that's a good example that we should follow today. We should do that kind of thing. Um, but I think sometimes we strain at a proof text to get it to prove a point. And maybe right. I think we've done that a little bit in Matthew 24. Agreed. All right, Chase, welcome back, but it's time to go. We're out of time. Sorry, guys. Hey, guys, I've enjoyed going through this study of the last week of, of Christ with you. Very good. We're going to have to talk about what we're going to do next week, but we'll do that off air. Lord willing, we'll see you all next week.